0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Ben Meaches to tell us all about his fascinating book titled Non Human Humanitarians Animal Interventions in Global Politics, published by the University of Minnesota Press this year in 2023. This is a fascinating book, honestly. I'm so excited to get into the many facets of this book that explores the role of animals laboring alongside humans in humanitarian operations, um, a whole bunch of different kinds of concepts of humanitarian operations, helping us think about what this means on the ground, what this means ethically, what this means politically. And um, There's really a lot to get into with this book. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to tell us all about it.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much, Miranda. I I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk about this book. And I'm glad that it was, you found it fascinating.
1: I did. Before we get into it, though, I will sort of rein myself in, you know, have a bit of patience and ask you to introduce yourself a bit to our audience and explain sort of how and why you came to write this book.
0: Sure. Um, So I am an associate professor of conflict studies and security studies at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Um, And this is my second book, my first book, The Politics of Annihilation, A Genealogy of Genocide, also with Minnesota, came out in 2019. Um, And in the course of writing that first project, I started working on a series of kind of side issues in the study of mass atrocity um, about the built environment or material actors and actants, things like barbed wire, um, things like the actual physical environment that mass violence was occurring in, sort of the assembling of concentration camps. Um, And part of the reason I was kind of curious about that is that there's a lot of emphasis in the study of mass violence that focuses on narrative and on sort of broad political categories, who's included, who's excluded, um, but less on how those things were actually designed, both intentionally and unintentionally, and then um, evolved and transformed as, as sort of physical institutions historically. And in that process, I ran into some interesting encounters in the literature with certain non human animals. And there's obviously um, a kind of burgeoning interest on the role of non human animals in armed conflict as well. Uh, and because there's some historical relationship between the assemblage of camp spaces in labor camps and concentration camps and humanitarian camps um, later on that are often used for refugee populations, et cetera, um, I also started to explore those as uh, kind of institutions and assemblages. In 2019, I wrote and published a piece with Review International Studies that also bears the title Non-Human Humanitarians that looked at um, different material actors or actants in the creation of humanitarian camp spaces, one of which was um, dogs that do the work of explosives detection and landmine detection. Um, And so I was sort of primed, as it were, from those projects to really think about how non-human animals are involved for a variety of reasons about the degree to which they have agency and the fact that they had to um, be engaged with by humanitarians who were um, strongly articulating ideals around human suffering, but also kind of human capacities for reason and empathy with one another. And I started to kind of consider critically how do they then understand and articulate the capacities of these companion animals that they're also working with? And I found that there were more different types of non-human animals involved in humanitarianism than I had initially thought, since this work kind of grew out of of dogs uh, and that they were doing more interesting things and that there was sort of greater um, diversity in humanitarian thinking about the role and relationship to non-human animals. And so Um, I was like, okay, there's obviously something here to be said, um, if not at kind of least because humanitarianism relies so strongly on the notion of a human and humanism, which draws its point of contrast through something that is non-human or inhuman. So it felt like a very fecund place to try to unpack what was both going in in human-animal relations and then within humanitarianism and its kind of limits as a a discourse and a politics itself.
1: And see... Listeners, that answer alone gives us a whole bunch of things that I'm going to ask about um, to go into it further. But staying on that last point first, um, can you tell us more about why you think exploring the role of non-human animals within humanitarianism, you know, something that does have so much thinking and so much sort of history and literature, help provide unique insights into these concepts of humanitarianism?
0: Sure. So uh, I kind of have a, a few different points of intervention or thought about this. The first is that, as I just described, there's obviously something in sort of the self-definition process of becoming or being humanitarian, which is curious. It's it's from my perspective in some accounts and at some moments, a sort of moral stance that opposes itself to forms of xenophobia and nationalism that's trying to embrace universalism and its politics it all grounded on the figure of the human. And if you look across major humanitarian organizations, they'll often emphasize the importance of human life writ large as their basis for defining and determining value. Um, we've obviously had a, a bunch of challenges to the universality of that from lots of different places, not including you know, just humanitarianism. Um, and I think that that raises a fascinating question when humanitarian organizations then integrate and work with Uh, sort of explicitly non-human figures and counterparts, how are they going to feel about questions around their, um, we could use the words of rights and welfare, but we also could think about sentience and consciousness, capacity, um, sociality, since basically all the non-humans that I discuss in this book are are, um, pretty complex uh, mammals, right, that obviously have um, many of those features in their own right. Um, So I I was kind of you know, interested in in how much humanitarianism could transform in relation to those or extend its insights and its uh, observations. That's one point where I think there was um, maybe even accidentally on the part of humanitarians, a really fascinating point probing at the limits of how humanitarians envision and extend their empathy and their sense of ethics and justice. So that was one kind of point of conversation, and we can talk about this more later, but there's um, some maybe contradictory directions that I think that that unfolds. A second point is that we have a lot of extent critical literature that has looked at the coloniality and the gendered character and the sexed character and um, the you know racial regimes and racialization processes, the sort of power powerless dynamics um, that in, inform so much of humanitarianism, especially in a post-colonial context. And I thought that a lot of those critiques ended up centering on the idea that humanitarianism is always kind of constituting non-human or inhuman others to which it, it is contrasting itself right and it does that to build sort of a moral point surrounding the type of um, human subjects and forms of human conduct that we want to engage in and it also does that in a way of justifying the forms of support that often go into you know humanitarian development projects and things along that nature And it it struck me that it would be curious to then hold up that kind of critical lens to humanitarianism, again, in scrutiny with respect to a subject that could never make a claim to be human in a a classical sense. And we could talk more later on about some of the ways in which um, various political movements have sought to to think about the inclusion of uh, non-human animals in sort of a traditionally anthropocentric framework. But this certainly, I felt, put some potential perspective on that critical work um and and maybe it was a different way of showing both the benefits and limitations, the you know advantages and liabilities and violences of humanitarianism. And then I'd say a, th- a kind of third point is that it it helped me to bring into focus an interesting thing which I feel like is part of humanitarian discourses and people who write in this area, which is there's this kind of Incitement to discourse, right, in the Foucauldian sense within humanitarianism, trying to figure out like, what does it mean to be humanitarian? Why do we keep on kind of having to stave off and justify and extend these different sorts of principles? One answer to that question is that humanitarians are in different kinds of political battles and contests all the time um, relative to other ideals and, you know, apathetic states and other things along those lines. Um, But part of it is also that I'm not sure. At the end of the day, there's really a good answer to the question of sort of what is it what is it involved to be human or to be labeled as human or to act in a human way. And yet that's so thoroughly bound up in the question of humanitarianism that um, part of what this helped kind of illuminate to me is there's some boundary keeping um, within the discourse on humanitarianism that really showed itself in response to the the dogs, rats and the other animals that I, that I, I talk about in this Peace. So it was kind of a fascinating way of thinking about what that work is doing, um, why maybe humanitarianism continues to be um, such a attractive framework for some constituencies and how it resonates with other kinds of struggles, whether that's about, say, the rights and plights of children or people who are framed as being you know victimized and suffering. Uh, often those things have quite a bit of kinship with the way we describe non-human animals. So there was a lot going on there. Maybe a final point, and this is you know a little, uh, you know, leaning into the rest of the book. But there's just a lot of curious things that uh, when you read about the role of non-human animals in these different practices that humanitarians have, have put them into, um, or you know, gone into them with, uh, that are are fascinating. That there are sort of a curious dimension to the um, phenomenology of you know an animal perception of the world and building. That um, both put some challenge on, you know, kind of classic ideas that center and prioritize human life and experience, but then also um, just uh, teach us some interesting things about other ways to engage the world. So I'll stop there. <laughs>
1: Before we dive further into a bunch of those points, because I think now that we, you've sort of laid out a foundation for us of what some of the interventions are that you're making, what are some of the things that we are discussing, um, I do want to clarify kind of which animals in particular you are focusing on. Um, dogs, obviously, is one of them. But there are, in fact, three sort of clusters of animals that you talk about in the book. So what are they and how did you choose?
0: Yeah, that was that's a really good question. Actually, so, <laughs> so, um, dogs are the, perhaps the most obvious one because they're uh, involved in explosive detection or landmine detection, and they're used in a variety of other social, civil, you know, roles. Emotional support animals, you know, their service dogs, etc. They're obviously used for identifying, you know, explosives in a, a militaristic and police context as well. Um, so there was kind of a, a very clear. Um, Emphasis and focus on them. Um, The second group are actually rats, uh, which, with the uh, kind of notoriety surrounding Magawa, who appears on the cover of the book, with an organization that works for an organization called Apopo that has a sort of brand around hero rats. um, That it it, um, Magawa is sort of the most famous of them, obviously, um, has similarly deployed rats after training them in uh, explosive detection processes. Um, And we could talk about the technical details a little bit between how dogs and rats do that, as well as the social and ethical questions that are involved there. Um, but they've also then extended into other humanitarian projects um, like the identification of infectious disease. And there's been exploration about whether or not they could be helpful in say illegal wildlife trafficking or um, potentially in the event of disaster relief, you know, finding people that have been, um, you know, trapped under crumbling infrastructure, those kinds of things. So there's actually a, a sort of multi-purposing of rats, you um, and I thought that the rats were an interesting point of contrast initially, and I build this argument into the book to some extent, because there's a lot more um, ambiguity around the status of rats historically, for reasons we can talk about later on. So there, that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to make sure to include them. And then the last cluster of animals that I talk about are um, goats and and cows, Uh And to a lesser extent, we could just say goats and caprines and bovines, which are the kind of um, broader species terms for those uh, animals. Um, There's a a really wonderful animal studies scholar named Catherine Gillespie, who uses the term farmed animals, which I didn't pick up on in this book, but I I think it's not a bad way to describe the cluster that's involved there. Um, In that case, there's a lot that builds out of what was called the Heifer Project, became Heifer International. uh, But this has been modeled more broadly than that at this stage, where it's basically giving Animals, as part of um, trying to transition people out of um, subsistence farming and into more robust agriculture as a strategy for dealing with with food aid. And in each one of these cases, there was a long standing and kind of formal set of dialogues and practices that had been developed to think about the relation between humans and non human animals, depending on the different situations. We also had um, several, what I would say are at this point very classically and to some extent isomorphic humanitarian situations with responding to landmines in the aftermath of, or of conflict or post-conflict, um, responding to infectious disease spread and certain situations in, you know, kind of classical, you know, development related challenges and crises that can be created. And then also in relationship to food aid um, and reducing questions of like famine and hunger. There were other non-human animals that inhabit humanitarian projects um, from, you know, the uh, cat and dog that people bring with them into circumstances, or that join into humanitarian compounds. Um, sometimes non-human animals are also used as uh, modes of transport by humanitarian organizations, and there are uh, any number of ways we could talk about those as well. But they have sort of a, a often less explicit role. Um, so I wanted to try to, to you know take organizations that had had and an practices that had sort of given formal thoughts to the the relationship to some extent, because I felt like that was the place where sort of the questions I, I, you know, outlined before the issues I outlined before were, were most important, so... That's, that's actually
1: a, that's a surprisingly like straightforward way to draw a line in this sort of instance. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense to have figured that one out because uh, it is so much about kind of how people think about these things as well, well as what they I, do. I would
0: also say just as a, an addendum to that, maybe, and I, I'm sorry if I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I also realized at an early point that um, if I had any aspirations to go and do significant field work, they were going to be cut short because of the emergence of the COVID epidemic. And so the book, became a bit more of a a theoretical exclusive enterprise when I wasn't sure if that was how it was going to be initially. And so part of it was also that I wasn't able to be embedded in a way I had thought I might want to be initially in in kind of writing this project. And so it it took a bit of a different turn, um, partly as a result of that.
1: Well, and that's one of the reasons that I tend to ask people questions about kind of the behind the scenes stuff, um, because those sorts of practical things do really influence kind of what cases we choose and what things we're able to look into. And it's an important part, I think, of understanding kind of how books develop and happen. So thank you for that addendum. Um, I want to kind of I am obviously going to ask you specific questions about the dogs and the rats and the goats. But I want to ask first about this kind of broader concept that really goes across all of those chapters um, and relates to some of the bigger picture things you were telling us about a moment before. Uh, The the term anthropocentric reason. What is this um, and what do you think it looks like in the context of humanitarianism?
0: Yeah, that's a, a concept that I sort of throw out at the beginning of the book to capture a phenomena within humanitarian discussions and practices with non-human animals, where there is, if you will, examination of the faculties, life capacities of non-humans. And it's often very thorough and considerate on the one hand, but it ultimately kind of is about how we purpose those different capacities for the extension or benefit of human life. So an example is you might come to think about the health and well-being and balanced diet for a rat. Um, But if you're doing that because you want the the rat's expertise to be uh, there for as long as possible, and in order for it to be able to clear as many landmines as possible for the ultimate benefit of a set of human you know, flourishing that you're hoping to build in the long run, then um, there's a question as to whether or not the rat's sort of well-being and health is actually the point of concern, or if it's just sort of a means to an end. And it, it bears, and I say this explicitly in the book, I believe, that it, it's a term that obviously has a lot of kinship with instrumental reason. And it's something that I felt like I wanted to star or highlight because there's a, a very strong anthropocentric bent here, even in places where partly because humanitarianism is interested in a certain model of compassion and response to suffering, but also because it's often, again, very thoughtful about the multiplicity of different needs and behaviors and responses of the, the non-human animals that are being worked with. Yet both of those ultimately seem in most cases sort of destined towards well, what can humans ultimately receive out of this relationship? And so, I thought it was kind of necessary to demarcate it um, as a, a bit of its own term and its own idea, um, because I don't think that humanitarians always—and there's again always divergencies. These are always sort of plural discourses, and that have a lot of going on in them. But humanitarians often, in contrast, offer a model of the human as a a sort of end in itself, right, where we really probably shouldn't be doing the same kinds of ethical calculations. Now, that's not always the case. There are lots of examples in in good literature that have said that humanitarians, you know, very quickly will uh, change from those principles and become, you know, utilitarian or only battle against the lesser evil, etc. So I I don't want to kind of present an image of humanitarianism is totally consistent in the context of the human and not in the context of the non-human. That's not a fair or accurate description. Um, but I did think it was a persistent enough feature across all of the discussions that I saw in one form or another that it was worth um, re- remarking on, that there's a kind of logic that reappears with respect to will be considerate of non-human animals, but the consideration largely extends insofar as that consideration is beneficial to some version of a human us, you know, no matter how broadly that's defined or narrowly it's defined or contested or what have you. And the counterpart to this in the book that I also describe pretty consistently is that uh, another feature in humanitarian discussions is what I call anthropocentric feeling in the book, which is that there's a heavy reliance as well, because we're talking about dogs and rats and goats and, and cows. On sort of a sense of emotional resonance that one can pick up on with non-human animals. And so there's, you know, tapping into by humanitarian organizations, a much larger genre of kinship relationships there, often through imagery and narrative and story. And there's some interesting tensions in many of the organizations between on the one hand, this is all ultimately about the service of human life, which is kind of the goal of humanitarianism in some version. And Here's also a series of, you know, really accessible, accessible, affectionate, you know, obviously primed for a a sort of global north audience that lives in certain sets of human animal relations, because that's a a cultural relation as well. Uh, But to draw in and make it seem like there's a lot of bonding there, there's actually places where you can go and meet a variety of these different animals as kind of an opportunity to connect with them. And that often what was strange is even that cultivation of anthropocentric feeling. Right, the sense of, of some kind of kinship with a non-human other and the work that they're doing then ends up you know, operating in the service of, of anthropocentric reason. It's a way that you raise certain sets of um, investments in the project, even if that project might expose animals to, to danger in some cases or lead to, to milking, which is um, obviously a, a form of f- coerced labor in many places and um slaughter in others right which is itself uh, a form of killing and violence and so um there's some interesting ways in which i felt like all of those kind of had to be pulled out to unpack what was happening
1: thank you for taking us through that um i think it helps us really kind of frame this idea of what we're looking at in the specific cases um for the different animals and i would love to now get into that um first with dogs. I think they're kind of, as you said, the obvious starting point. And of the many things that were interesting about dogs and their role in demining processes, um, one of the things I think is quite striking is this quote, dogs are not natural deminers. Dogs are strange ecological deminers. Because if you take kind of a you know, initial glance at the literature from these humanitarian organizations often the sort of natural abilities of dogs are touted as one of the reasons that dogs are involved in these processes. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean in this sentence?
0: Yeah, that's. A, I, I'm glad you picked up on this one. Um, it's a, one of those expressions when you when you're an author and you're writing things, you're like, oh, you go a little more, you know. The, 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 prosaic maybe, and you're like, cool, how will this be interpreted? Or what will people respond to? So it's good, because that's one of the moments where I I was like, I'm not sure if I should go for this or not. Um, So in the book, in each chapter, I try to lean a little bit into a few different uh, fields to help Ground some of the arguments I make. And in, in specific, I talk about some of the evidence surrounding the evolution and coevolution of um, each one of these non human animals in combination with human practice. I try to talk about some of the socialization that has happened as part of that and separate from that. I try to unpack the different sets of capacities, as it were, that. Some of the the non-human animals, often the ones that are included in humanitarian practice, have, right that are differentiated for a whole bunch of different reasons, um, for a whole variety of reasons. And then uh, I also then try to talk about some of the technical, um, if you will, governance of the non-human animal life to see how and why the organizations treat and respond. So I'm going to give you a practical example here in the context of dogs, right? Um, Dogs are one of the the animals that there are a a million different, you know, uh, books about maybe not a million, but lots of different books and, you know, uh, short documentary pieces and sort of everyone knows the the dog-human relationship is more complex than than meets the eye to some extent. So we could talk about the fact that there is a series of co-evolutionary circumstances, which to me... Cut against the idea that there is some type of natural, by which we mean sort of essential relationship between dogs and any one environment. In fact, there's a long history of mutation and adaptation that is priming the dogs to work in certain circumstances and adapting. That there, that is what's really key there for me is the historical contingency of that relationship. Pack on top of that socialization, which is actually quite rapidly transformed in human dog relations, right? Um, especially even in the context of sort of the West, where it's it's understood that dogs are now, you know, um, the members of the family and things like that, which if you journey back, even in sort of living memory, is not how dogs would have been framed in their connection with human life. It isn't always how we do it to, to this day. And then on top of that, we have all different kinds of breeding programs, training programs, you know, uh, various types of um, behavioral analysis and ex- exploration to try to prime dogs for the aptitude that they have. And if you look at that, what you're actually seeing is this extensive series of ecological, social, and technical conditions being applied to make dogs capable of going out mm-hmm. and doing this work. Right? It's not like you know, my dog at home, Bosley. Uh, who, you know, is a lovely dog for the most part, and um, does a good job barking at people who walk by our home, and um, follows things around with his nose at all times and has, you know, good sorts of engagements with all all different sorts of people, but apparently not other dogs. It's not like he's ready to go out and do any of this kind of work, right. Um, And that needed to be kind of pulled out because uh, that work of isolating out of the, the set of ecological conditions and environmental conditions and, and evolved changes to the dog and then very deliberate shifts make me think that the idea that there's something natural about what dogs are doing is, is a bit of a, a cheat, if you will. Um, it's denying the force of all of those relations some of which obviously involve forms of violence and control um, some of which emerge as a result and have changed humans right so there's kind of a a comforting reciprocity that we can figure out between them Um, and that i really didn't like some of the way that the humanitarian literature and you know literature beyond that was sort of saying well these are just natural abilities that they're not exactly natural they're heavily socialized and i wanted to pull that out first so that's one half of the equation the other piece is that I think once you get there, what you understand non-human animals to contribute to the different exercises and interventions in humanitarianism has to also go through a little bit of a shift, because it entails understanding that both individual dogs and then probably dogs to some extent as a species, because I, you know every individual is both uh, a, a form of some broader multiplicity, right? As um, involved in a a very different, um, if you will, uh, to Jacques Ranciere's phrase, partition of the sensible, right? So their version of what they care about, what they value, how they do that is entirely different. And there's some political friction in the background there that is always at stake. And one of the things I thought was fascinating as I started to explore this idea, right? So dogs both cooperating and resisting different kinds of Human sensory regimes is that what makes dogs, as a result of this historically contingent process, as a result of their you know sort of capture as it were into this work, um, is that there's an entirely different reading of what the the explosive ecology, which is the term I use for sort of minefields or, or you know, places where explosives have been littered, is that relative to humans, uh, you know, mines and explosives are dangerous because of normalized, embodied, to some extent, ableist conceptions of how one moves through um, post-conflict space, which itself has sort of, you know, it, conflict is not a, a neat term. It has messy ontological and temporal and spatial boundaries. Um, sometimes we ignore those when uh, it suits whatever kind of colonial hegemonic powers are about where war and conflict end. Um, but I don't think that the dogs who are trained in these ways, have that same set of understanding of the environment that they're in as a result of their mode of interaction, their kind of model of reality access. And I don't want to say that humans can exhaustively describe that because I think that the difference there between a human and a, another animal is, is a significant enough gap that it's probably, um, you know, something we can get an impression of in an anthropomorphic sense, but not explain. And yet the dog is interacting with a series of different types of intensities, um, there's often elements of excitement and play that you'll describe in hearing this literature and finding that there's a back and forth with um, the humans that are leading dogs or helping to lead them. It's kind of an interesting question is who's leading who right in the circumstances, the dog is the one who detects the mind, but there's a human on what we call a lead. So you can see some of the ambiguities and power and experience that come out there a little bit. Um, and I wanted to kind of highlight that actually there's this very, a typical element of the environment and the way that we tend to think about it. It's much more lively and interactive, I think, in the phenomenology of the dog, as opposed to this sort of terrifying, invisible, forbidding space um, that is melancholic and, and in a certain sense designed through its own contingency, the contingency of a mind or an explosive exposing to be either Violent about a set of, or towards a set of people that, you know, the war has disrupted their lives and people are not caring and intervening on their behalf to help them or supporting them and being able to do something in response, um, but also then, um, you know, forbidding in that regard. And so I wanted to pull out both the fact that there was this significant background context to these sets of capacities, that these capacities happen in collaboration with humans, they're not just unlocked and that they uh, change a little bit of the context in the way we think about what's happening in the spaces of armed conflict and post-conflict. And that partly as a result of that, one of the things that you find in the literature is a great deal of um, sympathy and resonance with the change in disposition dogs can bring to demining work also pulled through that. So I kind of wanted to Um, again, push back against the anthropocentric reason that just says, well, dogs are really good at this because of natural abilities. No, they're good at it because of a series of political and ecological changes, which then have attendant shifts in the way we understand how humans have altered the environment to be more deadly for one another, and even ripple effects in the kind of reciprocal interaction of dogs and humans doing this work that change how they feel and how they respond to it. So there's much more going on in that. And that's what I was trying to, to pull out in that expression.
1: That's exactly... I mean, that was brilliant. That's why I picked out that phrase. I was like, hang on, there's a lot packed in here. Um, And as you've just described for us, there really is a lot more than we might see at first glance of this idea of dogs are good at this. That's why they're involved. So picking up then on the kind of the ripple effects, that second point, the idea of it creates these bigger changes. If we take that even further, how then do dogs, when we are thinking of them in these more complicated, nuanced ways, transform humanitarian practice?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So one of the things that they do, and this is also a consistent theme that I think is true across many of the organizations that are involved with non-human animals, is they force humanitarianism, weirdly, to become a little bit more ecolog- ecologically sensitive and aware. So one of the things that you will find in the more anthropocentric reason bound literature on dogs in you know landmine detection for instance is there's an explicit consideration of the wastefulness of the practice and the destructiveness of that practice relative to the environment that's surrounding it right so it's all of a sudden priming to ask questions that It's not quite posed yet in what I would call the terms of multi-species justice, but it's it's tiptoeing into how are we going to do this intervention in uh, interaction with a broader set of life forms that inhabit this space, right? So I think that that's kind of fascinating. That's not, again, unique just to dogs and humanitarianism, but it's certainly something that you'll find a little bit more in the frame there because we've introduced this partner that can make contingent choices to some extent and does so in a way that interacts with other non-humans in ways that maybe most humans don't think about or or does not representative of whatever kind of norm there is and the the, the mode of of connecting with that environment. Second thing is that there is that disposition shift, I think, a little bit towards the work of um, humanitarianism itself that comes from this. Um, And this can go in a lot of different ways. There are examples where um, demining dogs have become sort of national heroes to some extent, right? I I think in Ukraine right now, I can't remember the name of the dog right now, but there's the bomb sniffing dog, which is not a humanitarian purpose of it became quite a a sort of uh, point of, you know, national pride in the conflict with Russia at this stage. That's about um, re-narrating forms of um, the, the sort of Political community and ethics around the engagement with the dogs. It's actually a, quite a long standing thing, right? Here, it's often strange that dogs who are non human become the vehicle of identification in humanitarianism and often the basis through which humanitarian organizations will market the work that they do to other audiences. And yet, it's also because dogs weigh enough to trigger some explosives in minds, technically, the dogs that are the ones who are also involved in some degree of risk-taking there. So that's one of those points where anthropocentric feeling, that sense of connection with the dogs, really becomes the basis from which we also expose them to some degree of harm and danger. Now, there's certainly not a tremendous number of dogs that are harmed in demining practices because we're quite safe with that, but there's still some calculus that's involved there that I think needs to be started and highlighted. And then there's a change towards what the work is like itself. You know, demining is a fairly slow process. Um, It often comes with very glaring results in terms of the um, violence that it enacts on people, the forms of death and debility that it produces. And I think that there is something to The collaborative dimension of that that comes in with dogs work where, and I don't want to say that this is essential, but I think it's potential um, changes the way that those organizations confront the series of the the violence of the situation that they're in and the people who are involved in it, the the kind of quality of the work um, in which the fact that that the dogs are vivacious, which is often, again, kind of something that gets commented on in this process, shifts the, the eagerness and the willingness that, that people have in there. And so there's some changes there that are um, almost at a level of like social emotional, um, but I think probably have uh, as of yet fairly undocumented spillover effects just because of the the paradigm that most of the studies surrounding dogs and, and demining have looked at um, that are also important, right? And so I, I think that there's, again, a, a series of different things that dogs do, you know, in, in terms of, Like technically, what what and how do dogs change humanitarian practice? Well, I don't don't know that they at the end result alter the fact that there's an effort to remove explosives from the ground so that people can live different kinds of lives there. I think that that kind of general or 30,000 foot view picture looks pretty much the same you know, there's some other curiosities embedded in here, right? Like the idea that dogs would do this kind of work doesn't come from humanitarianism. It comes instead out of a a militarized context, right? And there's a a much longer history of dogs using uh, smelling for hunting other non-human animals and, you know, um, Grégoire Charmieux has this, you know, synergetic form of war, kind of form of war that, that he describes that, um, you know, it's tracking and hunting things. There's this long history of dogs being used to maintain the violence of slave plantations and to prop up white supremacy. Um, and then even in the context of sort of the British and American experiments to see if dogs could do this kind of work. Some of that originated in the context of trying to draw an olfactory distinction surrounding different racial groups, right? In the U.S. history, a lot of this has to do with, could dogs smell Japanese soldiers? And then these are inadvertently discovered to be other opportunities to deploy dogs in armed conflict. And humanitarianism is sort of a a recent appropriation of that capacity. So there's also something kind of fascinating to unpack about the way that humanitarians often build... um, a lot of their practices directly out of forms of militarized practice or martial practice. And then how or when they mark that and contest that, because that's also something that needs to be drawn in here as part of the history.
1: So obviously you could have written an entire book about that, right? There's plenty of fascinating things um, that one could go even further into, but uh, I will move us on to the next category of animals you talk about, um, particularly in contrast to dogs, right? Because there is this idea of dogs have natural abilities and also human dog partnerships have been around for military purposes, but also beyond that for a really long time. Um, So humanitarians coming in recently, there's kind of a long positive feeling tradition and a lot of ways to draw on, not so much with rats, right? Um, Rat phobias are very much a thing throughout history. And I was fascinated about how you brought that history of rat phobias into agro logistics, and brought those things together to help us understand, uh, quote, a duality within humanitarianism. Can you take us through this interesting bit of the book?
0: Sure, maybe I'll, I'll just back up quickly to kind of talk about how rats became humanitarians in the first place, and then why it occurred to me that understanding rat phobia would help to again sort of set out the political conditions and circumstances in a, a, maybe a new light or a new way. So um, rats are basically tied into one organization, which is APOPO, which is started in the 1990s, um, basically on the whim where its founder was sort of like, what if we tried to find other non-human animals besides dogs? Right? I think it was gerbils or hamsters that was sort of the initial instinct that we could seize upon their really powerful or olfactory capacities, just like we do dogs, and use them for humanitarian purposes. And there's some sort of experimentation to see whether or not that occurs. And then eventually, uh, the organization gets founded and uses giant African pouched rats, which is a specific, very large um, type of rat. There's actually some debate in the literature as to whether or not um, in, in the... Evolutionary science literature about whether or not this is a rat or not, um, because morphologically something can look like one species, and that's the categories that we use it. Because you know, like as Jacques Derrida says, right the animal's not really a, a, a well-founded term. It's a corral we use to kind of understand different modes and life that can you know bleed and be differentiated into one another in, in lots of different ways. Um, more of a, a sort of signpost for telling us what humans are than it is a, an efficacious term. Um, the Kind of key thing there, though, is that they discover that there are lots of ways in which rats can both be successfully socialized to interact with humans. Again, so there's that technical process. This is not a species that I would say has the kind of long-standing social coevolution in the way that we tend to attribute to dogs, um, at least in, in a. Kind of strong positive relationship, you know, commensal and parasitic relationships, possibly. Um, but then, by sort of the the two thousand four two thousand five era, there's a pretty successful practice, and then it gets deployed. Um, I think it's Mozambique, which is the, it could be mistaken if that's the first or the most extensive place that the rats have been ext- uh, uh, sent to. It's it's uh, and uh, just skipping my mind in a moment, but um, the kind of change in technical practice is also sort of fascinating here. So um, dogs are traditionally led on a lead by a single individual. Rats will go on a string between two people. Um, And there is this, pretty progressive stage where the rats that are successful at um, identifying landmines um, will go through a a sort of training process, which is often like clicker training, right? With sort of behavioral reinforcement mechanisms. Um, And then they'll go through practice courses and get certified before they go out. Uh, And in this process, then there's this discovery of like, okay, so we figured out that we can attune the rats to explosive elements in, you know, DNT, TNT. Um, What else could they discover? Um, and that's when things like, well, can they detect you know TB samples, for instance, starts to become an interesting point of extension. And the kind of kind of key thing here is that rats are also light. They're less expensive than dogs to maintain. Um, if they're isolated, they're unlike a dog who, we haven't really talked about this so far, but there's always these kind of dualities in any relationship with non-human animals. We're like, well, we like dogs that are good dogs, but a dog who bites is fearful, right? And how do we manage the, the kind of uncertainty of how a non-human animal acts, which is itself its own prism. Um, There's obviously also proxies for like how people treat dogs and treat rats, but some of that in the context of the rat, just because of its physical size difference and its isolation and the way that this practice is managed allows for a, a sort of Clearer control and then you know experimentation. And so you can see some of that anthropocentric reason already coming into this tale. So there's very extensive this. Um, Magala wins a sort of a national award or international award, rather, for all of his landmine clearing, which probably brought the organization its greatest notoriety and is how I would assume most people are actually familiar with post work if they are. Um, your question, though, is then why did I turn to the history of rat phobia? And something that kind of occurred to me in this process is the degree to which. There was sort of a need for supplemental narration um, about the importance and value of the rats in a lot of the humanitarian literature that, that was surrounding this. Uh, even some of the you know major newspapers and other things like that that cover uh, McGowen's story sort of had to say, well, you, you should be not so shocked that the rats can do this really well, but you know, it's not surprising if you are because there's this long-standing phobia and we kind of constantly have to to overcome it. And it, then I kind of followed that same question structure that I went back to that I described with the dogs, I'm looking at some of the literature on the coevolution of humans and rats. I'm looking at the socialization, the technical, uh, technical processes that are around it kind of produce the, the situation that the rats are involved in. And in that process, I kind of asked myself the question, um, Why are humans in the context that I'm familiar with them, and it's not necessarily by any means a universal response to rats, so that's important to mark, Um, why are are they responsive to rats in in ways that are fearful and disgustful and still have upset, right? Like I think of a neighbor of mine, right, who freaks out whenever there's rats around and uh, that kind of thing. And um, I was reading at the time Tim Morton's work in which they uh, describe in a much more fecund and rich sense, the way in which ecology is often confronted with this paradigm that's called uh, that they call agrologistics. So, just to kind of give you a sense, agrologistics is a model for how if you will, agriculture and agricultural societies articulate a difference or eco- articulate ecological difference. Um, and Morton kind of sets out that there are sort of two or three different principles behind that. Um, one of which is the idea that presence is always better than absence. Uh, there's sort of an orderly to the way that agricultural runs and thinks about the schema of life, right? So sort of great chain of being stuff. Um, then there's also a, uh, Emphasis on the fact that existing is better than the quality of existence, right? So more is sort of better than than whatever the the status of the life under question is. And Morton builds this in to try to explain how we ended up um, in a situation where we have the Anthropocene and we have these sort of um, habits of thought and practice which. Uh, date back here. What what I did much more modestly with this model is I said, well, if I I take this, I can understand why rats have such strong phobic reactions because they're sort of parasitic on uh, a lot of what agrologistics likes paradigmatically, right? They chew into to cables, they eat through foodstuffs, they're sort of there and not there at the same time. Sometimes rats seem to swarm in ways that are not as well differentiated in the ways that we we like to have and individuated in the ways that we like to have for, for agricultural relations. And I tried to ground a, a bit of what I saw as the, the phobia of rats in the concentration, then expansion of this paradigm through, you know, capitalism and economic extension and, and sort of the globalization of, of one model of agriculture. And there's some references to people like James Scott and other folks who have talked about, you know, the embedding of early state form with agriculture as well, and the, the attendant pra- changes in social hierarchy that are there. Your question is, how does that then help think about a duality within humanitarianism, though, which is a really good uh, point to bring us back to rather than this kind of larger, you know, big meta stuff? It's fascinating to me that the rat's work is almost always then linked to, and this is not just for rats, but other non-human animals, to improving sets of places for agricultural outcomes, right? And that often the problem of lines are about the inaccessibility of space to then become primed for agriculture. Uh, And so in a weird way, I think that the domestication capture and repurposing of the rats actually takes place as part of a thinking about how to use ecological resources to extend and exemplify this paradigm. So if most rats in history have been understood as uh, parasitic on processes of agriculture and therefore on human life, and that's part of what the disgust and, and disturbance surrounding them has to do at a social and cultural level, here we have a way in which they are actually useful, again, through these extensive olfactory capacities, which are pretty phenomenal in terms of how much they can sense and, and, and feel in the world in ways that are different than humans, um, that extend in this other way or other domain. And I think that that, for me, was a big pivot point, if you will, in which what seems like a compassionate humanitarian practice, and I think there's important degrees in which that's the case, again, there's greater ecological sensitivity, there's interesting questions about, you know, they're often framed in, in the terms of animal welfare, which is the sort of dominant paradigm through which we think about, uh, how, you know, the ethics of non-human animals should be engaged with. Um, but all of those attendance to what rats can do in consents, and yet there's also this way in which all of that ends up being about extending this one paradigm, right? And that, that, that change in terms of what they, the rats could do or didn't do is really kind of the key point because it turns them from, and I think I use, uh, Daniel heller Rosen's phrase, right, that, that from the enemy of all, which everyone can see them as sort of an outsider to this one ambition into something that could be promoted. And so there's sort of a set of conditions, if you will, on um, how rats become humanitarian. And I think a lot of that has to do with agri- with agro agrologistics. Okay. Um, and I actually think more broadly that it'd be fascinating to think through, and I do it a couple moments in the book, but maybe not as extensively as I should, how much of humanitarian ambition is ultimately caught up with uh, forms of, of agriculture and agrologistics as sort of the best and default position for human life. So.
1: Well, in fact, one of the places that you bring that up, and thank you for the wonderful transition, in fact, to my next question, is um, obviously when we talk about cows and goats, right? There's a whole bunch of assumptions built in there about the role of cows and goats, the kind of benefit that they can bring for humanitarian practices. Um And again, I'm going to pull out a particular quote and ask you to tell us a bit about it because I thought this phrase was really interesting and packed a lot in. Quote, both the aspirations and practices of humanitarianism are something that you consider non-human animals like cows and goats to have a transformative role on. Can you tell us a bit about this?
0: Yep, I'm happy to. Uh, So in this case, um, goats and cows... Are, and, and uh, at different points um, again there's a strong sort of coevolution and human uh, relation with with them that needs to sort of be in our background context but um, they become understood as humanitarian in uh, a very specific moment associated with the rise of the heifer project um, and I, I'm just gonna sort of if you will fast forward through some of the background context there because um, What happens is uh, Dan West, who's with the Church of the Brethren, is um, on essentially a a form of um, support work during the Spanish Civil War and sees that there are significant sort of famine and chronic conditions or acute conditions, rather, of of malnutrition there. and has this idea that if we were to be able to give uh, heifers to people that were in Europe, we would be able to solve many of these kind of acute conditions by giving better um, ongoing resource and support to people. And there's a bunch of um, interesting assumptions about like what what is going on in the, the, the war in Spain and why it, it is that way. And, you know, that, that are in the background there. Um, but it is when he returns to the United States um, Certainly bound up with a form of what he understands to be charitable intervention, but also it is a very different model because the idea is not to give produced foodstuffs to people, but the capacity to create foodstuffs, and specifically to be able to do some of the the labor again of making farms (laughs) and creating agricultural space, but then also milk and meat, right? And, And in a certain way, um, this is one of the better points of contrast in the book between, say, dogs who we, we sort of have these strong, friendly relationships with. And you have to pull out in the background that there is some ambiguity about the status of that in terms of the health and life and the governance and exposure to danger of dogs. Here, um, milk, uh, milking and, and meat production are much more intimately bound up with violence against non-human life, right? And so, because um, obviously to, to produce milk, and there's an extensive literature in this in animal studies context, you, you really have to constantly have reproductive labor ongoing um, that then has to be uh, sold and has to involve kind of control over the animal's body at a certain point in time, right? And it's interesting because it's, it's a, also a certain sort of gendered labor at the same time, um, although we don't often talk at those kinds of intersections when we think about non-human animals. Um, and then obviously as well, there's slaughter practices that become a piece of this. And this is a point where there's some real tensions that emerge between If you want the goat to be a smiling compatriot companion species, and at the same time, you want to emphasize that there's sort of these remarkable capacities and benefits that come from socialization and interaction with animals, that they can uplift people, then um, killing the animal is also then a a kind of tenuous process. And so some of the organizations that do this probably have the strongest human non-human boundary um, in order to not have any ethical or moral complications and materialize from that. And so what I wanted to kind of show here with respect to the practice and aspiration piece was both the, the recency of this practice, as much as the idea of just giving people animals to do farming with is a millennia old, right? In some some forms, the idea that you could, in a certain sense, through Um, what's been classically referred to as animal husbandry, um, transform people into a place where they would alleviate suffering is a very different model. It's not the acute uh, sort of direct aid uh, model of humanitarianism that's often involved in disaster relief. It's much more about can we build up the life world of people who are in a position or a condition of subsistence to withstand the Forces of underdevelopment and colonialism and capitalism to be much more successful, and some of that's obviously not, if you will, very um, neutral in uh, you know uh, racial and colonial and cultural terms to some extent. There's a, quite a lot of judgment in the background about what the status is of subsistence, where it comes from. There's some naturalization of famine and subsistence as opposed to seeing those as a result of assembled political and economic practices. Um, there's also a theological motif that comes in here that's sort of fascinating, right? Because there's um, sort of explicit regimes of pastoral power as part of the idea of um, you become a more successful, more developed, more capacious person through the process of mastering non-human animals, which is then also how you develop local markets so you can withstand the shocks that might come from other political practices. And there's some interesting pieces as well about like, what what is a problem about subsistence life, right, from the perspective of this paradigm? Why is subsisting not sufficient? And it goes back maybe to some of those um, agri-logistic assumptions that Morton um, pulls out when they say, you know, what is the quality of life versus its persistence, right? Those are kind of things that have been embedded in um, agri-logistics the entire time. And so I saw some of those things as harmonious and resonant with existing humanitarian uh, practices, and some of them as actually quite deep interventions in terms of wanting to mold a specific part of life on um, the subjects that receive non-human animals, and that much of that had to do with um, being open to committing acts of violence against non-humans at the same time that some of the same organizations and some of the other humanitarians are you know, discussing the value and the empathic capacities and, you know, the different degrees of sociality and reason, and then marketing at the exact same time, um, the value of their practice through images of non-human animals. And um, that to me was one of those moments where those contradictions became most acute. Going back to sort of the beginning of our interview, if anybody remembers it, right? One of those moments where I can also say, here's this very peculiar form of violence that is intimate to humanitarianism. Um, in which it sort of extends from the much broader uh, set of uh, violences against non-human animals in the form of and, and other, you know, obviously other life forms beyond non-human animals in the form of um, at the destruction of the environment or deforestation, um, obviously from a lot of the effects of runaway climate change or anthropocene writ large, but then also in. Um, You know, variety of practices of killing and coercion, which are embedded into things like meat production at scale, right? And so there's sort of a a tenuous relationship. And humanitarian organizations do a a job to distance themselves from some of that. And yet I'm not sure that the benignness with which they try to uh, separate out their practices at the end of the day, alleviates so much as just provides a different mode of where that violence comes in, And all of it is premised much more strongly on on a certain idea of human mastery. So there's sort of an idea that I think is disciplinary, maybe not unique totally to this moment in humanitarianism. It's certainly part of other humanitarian um, practices at different points. But you can see it here with respect to, again, to use Gillespie's term, farmed animals um, much more powerfully um, in a way that I think needs to be drawn out.
1: I think this raises a lot of really interesting questions um, and does provide a point of contrast, which again, makes it even clearer kind of why you chose these three categories of animals to look at, because they're raising all sorts of different things and helping us understand kind of the influences on humanitarianism and thinking about it more broadly. What then to sort of draw you back to the real world, I suppose, perhaps unfairly. What are the kind of practical implications of this for humanitarianism in practice, for the ethics of humanitarianism? Kind of what should be done? What could be done? What what are the implications here?
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's probably important, right? It's always good to come back to reality at times. Uh, as a fa- matter of fact, like I sort of begin the last chapter of the book with this provocation like, I, I think it's always good practice to say, like, what would somebody who really disagrees with this come away from and want to say? And the answer is like, okay, but uh, what you've really done is pointed out some cool ways that uh, non-human animals have been used by humans, but the good intentions come from the humans uh, they're the ones that are doing most of the work to sort of prep the animals to do the work and guiding them in their work and telling them where to go. And, you know, milk is something that humans have done with non-human animals for what, four or 5,000 years anyways, 10,000 years, we're not exactly sure where that practice went. And certainly dogs and humans have coexisted for a really long time and, you know, discovering that rats can, you know, have really strong olfactory capacity is not exactly novel, right? So maybe it's not not that special what the the non-humans are doing. Um, I think that there's some interesting ways to to push back against that. Um, One of which is to say, well, I understand that that perspective and that point of view. Um, First, there obviously, though, is a problem in, if you will, the discourse and the status of the way that humanitarians think about themselves and their ethical categories that is being created by this. There wouldn't be a need to speak on the relation of human and non-human animals if it didn't imp- create some kind of problem, right? And so if there's an incitement to discourse, it signs that there's an issue. And what I think is really at stake there is not just the individual practices that the animals do, although I'll talk through why I think those are important as well in a second, but sort of, if you will, and this is where the book is more of an internal critique of humanitarianism, What what is humanitarianism going to be moving forward? What kind, what does it mean to become a humanitarian, right? Because we're not, I think, at a point where we can scientifically, philosophically, psychologically, environmentally say with any degree of self-consistency anymore, the human is some kind of special category that sits over here separate from the rest of the world, right? It's too ecologically embedded. There's obviously lots of ways in which the human community is traversed by all kinds of hierarchies and and destructive forces and creative forces. And so, um, humanitarianism has insisted for a really long time, a uh, normative universal human subject as its strategy for getting there. And, and instead, what's kind of poking out here is a way in which that doesn't really work. And yet, the organizations, even the ones that, that, that participate in like animal slaughter and milking, all have interestingly strong takes on the need to think about the environment, to think about the earth. As a political context, and and sort of the uh, various subjects and life forms of the earth, to think about environmental wellness, um, and and what what that would mean, and often that is interpreted through a human prism. But I do think there's something there to the fact that if you admit that you have to take seriously the ethics of interacting not just with human others but non-human others, that the set of um, political ener- the energies and the politics and the things that you're calling out to criticize and say we need to change. Undergo some shift. And from my perspective, this is a bit symptomatic of the fact that up until this point in time, if humanitarianism addressed climate problems and environmental issues and sort of non human others, it did so only a, a, as a result of whatever sort of damaging effects it wanted to constrain and provide for human communities. And that's sh- sort of showing that, well, if you extend just a little bit further some of that framework, there's a lot more there that humanitarians can. Um, Address and need to be sensitive to, and there's been a lot of harm potentially done, without from not thinking more carefully about those things. Now, I don't know at the end of the day that adding humanitarians to the list of folks that are also protesting the Anthropocene, many of whom I'm positive would already be on board with that as a political initiative. Um, is, you know gonna change the the, the course of of things at, at, at a you know sort of global scale or anything like that but I do think it matters in terms of the way that individual humanitarians um, and organizations that are out there uh, consider their practice you know there's a lot of work to try to get humanitarians to think about when they're traversing national and, and cultural boundaries how that work is done but attendant and alongside that is what kind of ecological life are you involved in what types of um, impact does putting compounds in different places have on the surrounding environment and the places they're in. I think those are things that these the inclusion of these animals has done um, to the way that some of these organizations frame their work. And I think that that's, first of all, kind of an important shift. Um, second thing is, I really do think that there are, in each one of these cases, tangible benefits that have been documented to the practice of working with non-humans that make some of the humanitarian practices both more efficacious in terms of the degree to which they're able to address things like um, landmines, more creative in terms of their engagement with and outreach efforts to others right, and to human communities to signal around them. And in some cases, even uh, inventing uh, new ways of trying to interact with non-human animals, right? So I think in the case of Apopo, right, there was a, an experimental phase, which on the one hand, we could read as very much about controlling and managing the life of an animal. On the other hand, there's quite a lot of sort of discovery and encounter and um, re- reciprocity and figuring out how to communicate, um, even through, through you know, behavioral means. I mean, the, the sort of first principle of of behaviorism is actually the behavior is communicative fundamentally, which I think is kind of fascinating, um, in order to make some of that work. So I, I do think that there's a, a value in, in, um, if you will, promoting some of these efforts, publicizing them, because I think they, they do, um, the work that they do is different than other modes that we can attack. And we should be able to analyze the costs and benefits more clearly and see the benefit of some of this, um, And then, lastly, I just think that there's, and maybe this is very clear by this point, but I do think there's a strong ethical stake in saying, okay, if you peel away emotion and reason as the basis from which you form um, uh, kind of an ethics of generosity and care and compassion towards others, what happens um, and to humanitarianism? And I think it has to become more attentive to questions of um, non-human animal life. Um, You know, you could make a case, I think, that would be almost entirely within humanitarian terms and discourses that the greatest humanitarian catastrophes in which there is deliberate violence against uh, a subject capable of some emotion of a version of ethics, sociality, you know, compassion um Self-understanding, sentience, uh, any of the cr- criteria—I don't know that we need any one of those per se to make this this case. At the end of the day, um, is actually f- directed towards non-human animals, right? I think it's something on the order of there will be enough broiler chickens um, that will be killed in the like the century or surrounding it that it will form their bones will form like a layer of the the planet potentially moving forward, like it will be demonstrable that this was the age of the chicken as opposed to the age of the human because of the scale of violence that's there. Um, And that's asking a lot maybe to to bring those things into conversation, but there are obviously other political movements that um, attend much more directly to the status of non-human animals. And um, there's people like, uh, you know, Will Keimlicka and Sue Donaldson who have built entire frameworks to think about what the politics of that might be involved in. And um, I just think sort of pushing humanitarians to take those questions seriously um, as part of how we understand where the violence is. Um, and maybe, you know, we're at the stage where the Anthropocene and climate change is not something that we can stop. It's acceleration completely. Um, the issue of how we're going to reduce the harm we do to one another and mourn the losses of uh, both individuals and life forms and where we all fit together in that is something I think everyone probably should be taking seriously at some level. I know I grapple with those questions constantly. I don't know that I have any answers to them per se. Um, but I'd like to I'd like to make that uh, a more central problem for humanitarians to take up um, because so far I think they're sort of tapping into non-human animals without dealing with the politics that's attendant in that and all of the um, messy questions about violence and well-being that are also involved.
1: Hopefully... Mildly less existentially than that answer, um, but still very much in the realm of bringing you back to reality and the practical. I don't know that um, I hit
0: reality in the last answer, to be honest, so we'll see.
1: Well, I think you'll have to in this one. Um, you've just raised obviously a ton of interesting questions to be explored in practice and in further research. Um, what are you working on next now that this book is out? Whether or not it's another book, whether or not it's on this exact topic? What might listeners um, see from you in the future?
0: Uh, That's a good question. So I've been working on one um, smaller project that will probably be article length whenever it's done. That is on the phenomena of bird strike. Are you familiar with that term?
1: Uh, Yes. So So not in academic articles, but... It's, I will it's
0: learn. not a big subject in academic studies so far, um, except in places like design and engineering and to some extent, environmental management. So strike, for those who don't know, is uh, when an aircraft collides with a bird. Um, it's been a topic in aviation for quite some time uh, because the first bird strike happened like with the Wright brothers at the very beginning of aviation uh, or human aviation rather. Um, and it's a fairly widespread spread phenomenon now with, you know, hundred thousand plus flights globally every day. Um, and there's been some very, you know, large examples of it. Like there was the, the case in New York about a decade ago where a plane came down, but it's also been um, uh, something that, um, not just commercial, but military um, sort of thought has been extended to to try to understand, you know, how do birds complicate the operational environment? So um, I've been thinking a little bit about this because um, as I was doing some of the work on this book, I was also reading quite a lot of um, literature on different non-human animals, and it's very clear that bird strike is a phenomena that if you journey back. 50 or 60 years when it happened was understood as a problem of um, human uh, error. So it was a mechanical function. It was a failure in human primacy and mastery of the environment. And now, if you frame it and interact with it, there's a a heavy emphasis on security. Um, And security affords a bit more agency to birds in creating the collisions. And so I've been trying to investigate why did we start thinking about Bird Strike, which is, again, a a very infrequent in terms of its danger and damage to human life occurrence as a problem of security, as opposed to one of error. And what was at stake Mm -hmm. in that shift and um, trying to tease out some of the paradigms there. So I've been thinking about that for a while um, as sort of a Mm -hmm. a parallel project in the background. Um, Eventually, I'm, like I said, my first book's actually on on the concept of genocide. And it's, it's sort of, Histories and it has some interesting interaction because I look at some sort of um, more marginal or minor moments in the study or the articulation of genocide, including some where um, people have used that frame to understand treatment of non human animals. Um, But I'm at some point intending to return and think about, uh, in that kind of rich materialist sense, actants and objects, um, Mm -hmm. how those. Are um, employed in uh, mass atrocities because there's been a lot of study in sort of new materialism and actor network theory to think about war, um, but the study of mass atrocity and violence because of some of the strong emphasis on human intention and perpetration hasn't done that same kind of materialist glance, at least not very thoroughly. So I'm I'm in the process of starting to think about what a project on that might look like. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously this book just came out real recently, so. Yeah. (laughs) um, (laughs) I'm not there yet, but that's. that's... We should
1: probably also get some sleep, you know, before the next book project, something like that.
0: Yeah, that would probably be good. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. well, Uh
1: while you're getting some sleep and thinking about those fascinating next projects, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Non-Human Humanitarians, Animal Interventions in Global Politics, just published by the University of Minnesota Press, Ben, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.